I was in a, um, a hill that overlooks Jerusalem with Dr. Wilbur Williams and his wife Ardelia. And uh, it's the very spot in Luke 24 where Jesus ended up in heaven. And we're looking over the eastern wall, the eastern gate there. And right below us to the right is the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and we're all kind of pressing in to hear what Dr. Wilbur's going to say about the ascension. And uh, he's talking to us about um, the way that Jesus would move and work with his disciples. And then he said this, because there's so many questions. You know, but when did this happen? Or where is the Ark of the Covenant right now? Or how old is and I remember him saying to 60 of us, there's one thing um, that is most important to us as believers that we have to understand. And it's by faith. By faith is the key component that we have to have to have this incredible relationship with our creator God and his son, Jesus Christ, by faith, above everything else. And I wrote that in my notes with so many other things that you said that trip and the one after that we took. And uh, um, on behalf of all of your colleagues in the School of Theology and Ministry, Dr. Wilbur and all of your colleagues, Dr. Ardelia, IWU is so proud of you guys. We're so grateful for how many years you've cared for us as students, as friends. And uh, um, we are so um, grateful that you're going to be here this morning. In fact, uh, Dr. Lowe talked to Dr. Wilbur Williams last spring and said, this series is coming up. And it can really shake up our campus. And Dr. Lowe said, I want you, Wilbur, to close it out. And so this isn't something that he put together this week. This is something he's been working on for months and months and months. And I think primarily it's because he loves you. How many years and years and years have you two professors put in and invested in the lives of all of us is, is incalculable. The time and the effort and the love. And so we appreciate you two very much. And I just want to pray for you right now, both of you. And let you know that we as an IW family love you and are so grateful for you. Join me in praying over them. Father, I ask right now your blessing on Wilbur and Ardelia Williams. Thank you for bringing them to Marion College and now IWU all those years ago. And on behalf of the thousands and thousands of students and people and colleagues that they have blessed and ministered to over the years. God, um, continue to use them and let them know how much we appreciate and love them. And uh, why we have them, God, um, help us to enjoy and to glean from them, whether it's in the classroom on that sacred land so far away from here. God, help us to enjoy their presence. 
and to be grateful that we knew them. Be with us as we hear the words that you have given him for us. We believe it's sacred today. It's ordained that he would speak today to us and unify us as a body. In your name we pray. Amen. Dr. Wilbur. I don't want... I don't want to disappoint you, but the man who he described couldn't come. I'm here, the humble <laughs> person. Well, I guess all of you know my name is Wilbur Williams. Uh, my, my mother wanted W to be used, you know. I mean, my father was named William, William Williams. Uh, my brother, who was two years my elder, was named Wayne Williams. So mother preserved a W for me. And, um, you know, the, the, the name Wilbur Williams has been a problem to me all of my life because, you see, uh, I hate to uh, tell you this, but uh, the, uh, the, the word <coughs> Wilbur <coughs> means wild boar. <laughs> it really does. And that's plagued me. It has haunted me. It, in fact, I, I couldn't remember it, but... When my mother went to the hospital to deliver me, obviously I couldn't remember, <laughs> and uh, after they took me and cleaned me up and brought me back for my mother to see me, and she thought, oh my, I've given birth to a wild boar. I've got to name him Wilbur. <laughs> it troubles me at times because, you see, I have a tendency if I'm to be introduced to somebody, to shake their hand. And then I have to be careful because I, off, I feel like uh, saying this, <laughs> which is, I'm glad to meet you. Uh, in pig Latin, of course. <laughs> and of course, I was asked to speak on how old is the earth. I didn't check it out, but I was wondering if the possibility that it was because of my age. <laughs> well, that time at times troubles me too, because after the 48 years now I've been here teaching, I awakened from sleep and realized I had a dream. And I dreamt that, yes, one of my first students was Abraham. But now I worry a bit about that, because if I continue to teach some more, I may begin to, dream, begin to dream again that, yes, I believe Adam was in my class. <laughs> Eve was with him, of course. Well, enough levity. In preparing for this chapel, I decided I wanted two verses of Scripture to be my bookends. The first was Hebrews 11:3. Until God spoke, nothing existed. And 1 Peter 1.25, the word of the Lord endures forever. To begin to understand God's creative activity in Genesis 1, we have to realize that when God created, he created with the appearance of age, process, and development. And if we don't begin there, we begin to walk towards evolution there was evolution, but only within the species or in the form. For example, zoologists tell us if we quit selective breeding of cows, we will 
all finally have one cow with all of the variations in it, but it's never anything but a cow, never was. And so as a result, we have to understand that God is the creator of all. Now, many believe that this happened in 4004 BC. That was studied by James Usher, who was born in 1581. He was a great scholar. For a period, he was the archbishop of, of, of oh, my mind is going blank, the archbishop of, 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 of Latin. Well, uh, let me get it. <laughs> the archbishop of Ireland, there it is. And um, he was 40 when the King James Version of the Bible was published the first time. He did his calculations on the on the. The King James Version. Nothing wrong with that, of course. I was raised on it. But I want to ask a question that maybe there is possibility that God created the world a bit earlier than 4004 B.C. We know the word day is used 1,723 times in the Bible. And one scholar mentioned that when we talk about it, and of course day is yom in Hebrew, when we talk about it, that, that it, it, it was God who was working all of the time. And so uh, we have to realize that uh, he is active in all of it. So now, uh, talking about this possibility of, of day, there, to show you the extremes, let's say that I said earlier than today, I'm going to speak in chapel today, today, this day. That means 30 minutes unless some of you wish it was 25 or less. But now if I say there were no automobiles in George Washington's day, that is a lifetime. So it is a, a moment at, as a minimum, and then as 1 Peter 3.8 declares, with God, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. One view of the expansion of the old time, earlier time in 4004 is called the intermittent day theory. It emphasizes that God was the creative in seven 24-hour days, in 24-hour periods, but there was a pause after each day's activity, which incidentally, it starts with the night and starts with the night and begins with the day. All creative days ended with the phrase, there was evening and there was morning of the day. And so that day's length could have been a long period of time, according to this view. Here's a possibility of, of it. When God wanted trees, he might have said, let there be seeds of trees scattered all over the earth. Then, during the long period following, the seeds developed into forests all over the earth. The second view is what is called the gap reconstitution theory. It begins with the first verse in Genesis, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Completed sentence. Verse. Now, there is verse 2, which says, now, after what? Now, the earth was formless and empty. Does that mean God created the earth formless and empty? If he did, 
we have to ask for what purpose the possibility is that God did not create it that way it became formless and empty now you may ask does the Bible suggest this might have caused the destruction well I'm glad you asked consider Revelation 12 7 it might apply their war broke out in heaven Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him Jesus witnessed that happen he says in Luke 10 18 I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven Isaiah tells us about the fall of Satan in chapter 14 verses 12 to 15 with God speaking directly to Satan how you have fallen from heaven O Lucifer son of the dawn you have been cast down to the earth you who once laid low the nations you said in your heart I will ascend to heaven I will raise my voice above the stars of God I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain I will make myself like the Most High but God says you are brought down to the grave in the depths of the pit now back to Genesis 1 four verses tell of this day the fifth verse does not say the first day even though it's translated that way in NIV and King James Version and other versions in Hebrew it says day one all of the other days are ordinal second third fourth all of the way through seven but verse one might be the actual first day when God created the heavens and the earth then Satan's livid enraged revenge at being cast out of heaven began he was determined to destroy the new earth of, that God had made and make it nothing but emptiness Isaiah says more in chapter 45 verse 18 this is what the Lord says he who created the heavens he is God he who fashioned and made the earth he founded it he did not create it empty to be empty but formed it to be inhabited two major prophets talk about this event and the first one is Jeremiah chapter 4 verses 23 to 26 and remember that God is giving him a vision about what is happening as Satan is going about his destructive activity and he is deeply moved and he tells of his reaction I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty I looked at the heavens and the light was gone I looked at the mountains and they were quaking all of the all of the everything was swaying I looked and there, there was no people every bird of the sky had flown away I looked and the fruitful land was a desert all its towns lay in ruins before the Lord finally Ezekiel's inspired words in chapter 28 verses 12 to 15 it speaks of the greatness God had planned for Satan because he was made to be a leading angel and so God addresses Satan directly 
You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, chrysolite, emerald, topaz, onyx and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among all of the fiery stones. You were blameless in all of your ways until wickedness was found in you. By the way, this view was supported in the third century by church father Origen, who was a great scholar. He lived in Caesarea and began a library there that in a few short years developed into 30,000 volumes. But not alone Origen, in Augustine in the first century believed God's creative days were not 24 hours. Rather, they assumed the days were figurative or allegorical. I think it is safe to say to the present day, the best Hebrew exegesis has never regarded these days as 24-hour periods, but as days of indefinite duration. Now, my third view explaining how time was compressed in the Bible is that it was shortened by scribal errors. I'm going to tell you things you probably never heard before. I don't know. All of the original manuscripts were written on perishable material likely vellum from animal skins and we would never find the originals so now it was necessary for people to start hand copying starting with the originals then hundreds of scribes over hundreds of years continually worked to make more handwritten copies which didn't end until the printing press was invented 1439 because of extensive and frequent usage the scrolls began to break wear out and tear apart. This necessitated a constant stream of scribes having to meticulously write the new scrolls to replace the old ones. Then as Christianity grew, hundreds more were needed and additional scribes were required. For the most part, the scribes were disciplined and careful in copying from the old manuscript. They felt their mission was to make every jot or tittle to be exactly the same as they were copying. Yet, human errors were made, some of which were never corrected. I give you three examples. The first is in 2 Kings 24.8. We read about the young king Jehoiakim, that he was taken to Babylonia after three short months on the throne. As is typical of all of the kings, when they began their rule, their age was given. For Jehoiakim, he was 18 years old. Now, when we turn to the account, same account, in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36, 9, there we read Jehoiakim was eight years old. Oh, 10 years different, which is correct. Well, it happens the king's passage is correct. What happened was this, that a scribe, who knows who he was, from an old Chronicles scroll wrote the word, he's writing a sentence, wrote the word Shimona, that's eight. Now, maybe his hand hurt, he had to get up, exercise a little. He comes back to finish the sentence, 
and he thinks he finished it, but he didn't. He left out a word, and that word was esrei, which is ten. The original said eight plus ten. He didn't copy the ten, so we have an error in Chronicles that was not intended to be. Now, the this, this second scribal error is far more serious. It is found in the book of Esther, chapter 2, verse 5. We learn about a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin who lived in the castle of Susa, or near it. His name is Mordecai. Then we are given his lineage. His father was Yair. Yair's father was Shammai. Shammai's father was Kish. This is the Kish that is the father of Saul in the Old Testament. The name is not mentioned, probably, because the readers would seem the dramatic difference between the two, the terribly self-centered serving Saul and the godly Mordecai. We then read in verse 6 that Mordecai had been taken captive by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in the second of his three attacks. In that attack, it happened that King Jehoiakim went into a slavery with him. Now, verse 7 relates that Esther's parents had died and that she was the younger cousin of Mordecai who adopted her to be his daughter. We know the second attack of Nebuchadnezzar took place in 597 B.C. Xerxes did not become king or of Persia until 485, 112 years later. Esther was made queen in the seventh year of Xerxes, and now we're back to 119 years later, and the date now is 478. If Mordecai was, let's say, 20 when he was taken into captivity, he would have had to be about 140 years old, still working for Xerxes, and, and being so concerned about Esther, there had to be an error somewhere. Earlier this year, I was sent a new book from Oxford professor writing on the Old Testament to look at. In looking through it, I happened to notice in the introduction that he called this passage a gross error in the Bible. We are told, we are not told when Kish died. We are told when, when Saul died, it was 1044, he was fighting the Philistines, they're driving him up the hill of Geboa, and we know it to be 1044. Well, we know this because of a solar eclipse that took place June the 15th in 763 B.C., which corrected all of the dating errors in the Bible from Samuel all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. And so, as a result, then this is what had to happen if there wasn't three or possibly four men who was missed in the lineage, Mordecai, there was a 450-year period. So if that's not the case, then Yair and Shammai, the two in the lineage, had to cover 450 years. Each of them would have to be 225 years old, and that's not the, uh, correct. Now, I would affirm it is not a gross error, but instead some unknown scribe centuries ago failed to write the names of the three or the four in the lineage. If I am wrong, these two men, Yair and Shammai, would have had to have lived for 255 years each. This had to be the case. If it isn't, then we have to say God inspired a gross error in the book of Esther.
I cite the third situation of the scribal error. This one was in the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew names the messianic line from Abraham to Jesus. In verse 6, he mentions that King Jehoram was the father of King Uzziah. In reality, Uzziah was the great-great-great-grandson of Jehoram. There were four monarchs' names not mentioned, blank, and they were on the throne between these two kings. I think that I have to be right in that, and so, you know, I think the devil tries to get in somehow to try to... All of this is simply the structure. Truth will never be... ever be darkened in any way, but the Bible has to have a scaffolding for the truth to stand on. So any errors like this is only in the scaffolding. It doesn't make a difference in truth at all. But now why have I mentioned the possibility with relationship to 4004 BC and when God created the world? It is my frank opinion, it is likely, the 10 generations between Adam and Noah and the 10 generations between Noah and Abraham also have names left out of because of scribal errors. Now, to consider the evidence from archaeological excavation in the last 80 years. During the last 40 years of that period, ending with, for me, five years ago, I spent my summers working on excavations in Israel in eight major cities, including Jerusalem. Uh, I mentioned that some time ago with, uh, to, to, to a student at that time, and, and he said, well, working on archaeology that many times, you must be an expert. I said, yes, I am. If you define it right, you see the expert, the S is a has, X is a has-been, and a spurt is a drip under pressure. That's me. <laughs> but archaeology has had a wealth of information to tell us. Some finds are there that are not even in the Bible. I mention one. And it is this, when digging in Jerusalem, we began to find bulas while sifting dirt from a house we called the Burnt House. To explain a bula, imagine a scribe writing a letter. He rolls it up, he ties a string around it, and then he has to tie a knot. On the knot, he uses damp, hard clay. He works it and smooths it, about the size of a nickel, maybe double that size, and he stamps his name in it. And so what occurred was, when these bulas were in a house or a library, they were destroyed by Babylonian fire-tipped arrows sent by Nebuchadnezzar in the third and final attack. Altogether, we found 52. They're in the museum in Jerusalem. One of the scribes' name is mentioned in the Bible, Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, mentioned in Jeremiah's book. He was a scribe that was bought and used by King Jehoiakim, who was the father of King Jehoiakim. It's confusing, I know. But he hated the ground Jeremiah walked on. He wanted him dead. And so Gemariah was sympathetic with Jeremiah and his scribe Baruch, and so he advised them, you better go hide from Jehoiakim. Doing what they said, he probably saved both the lives of Jeremiah and his scribe. Now, to have to consider the oldest city of the world of Jericho, it was excavated in the 1950s by British archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon. She removed 21 layers, very careful, the most of any city, because it's the oldest city in the world. 
one by one carefully, all of the way down to bedrock and undisturbed soil. Digging down, if one is digging in the Holy Land, in archaeology we will see iron, weapons, and tools until we come to 1200 BC. All disappears. That's when iron was introduced. Dig on down farther to 3,200 years, and then we have no more bronze. Well, she had dug all of those levels, digging deeper, and finally she came to, without, uh, without uh, continued as continued excavating, she discovered a massive 30-foot-high rock tower. I've been there many times, way, way below ground level, with 20-some steps that had been used for a lookout. A carbon-14 test dated to have been made 6,000 B.C., with a margin of 210 years, give or play, uh, less or minus. In a few years before 4004, it is. Now, normally in experience, my experience, carbon dating is used less to establish a date as it is to confirm a date established by other criteria. To me, carbon-14 dating is a God-given method of confirming age, though it has to be admitted, the farther back it goes, the margin of error increases. Now, in closing, hope I have the time. I want to conclude with a few thoughts about the age of the earth from other sources. Since 1990, for the last 24 years, the Hubble telescope has circled the earth in space, but now from the 24 years, improved lenses, improved technology, it now is making for uh, possible for, I quote, researchers to see four light years higher in the space and seeing thousands of galaxies. They report that they also know when the Big Bang took place. It was only 13.7 billion years ago. Of course, that's extrapolation, that everything is gradual. But that's not all. Now completed in the last two years in Chile on the Atacama Desert, 600 to 700 miles long, north to south, and the largest radio telescope ever to be built is now completed, just this year. It was funded by Europe, North Africa, and Eastern Asia at the cost of $1.3 billion. No wonder we have such a deep deficit. The report is, I quote, they are now getting pictures 10 times sharper than the Hubble telescope, and it is lo located five miles high where oxygen is so thin that they are having headaches, nosebleeds, and dizziness uh, because they want to keep digging there since... In the winter, it blows, the wind blows 65 miles an hour at 10 below zero. And why they want to keep digging there is because it's so high, the elevation, there's been no rainfall for the last 400 years. Any dampness would skew the images, preventing them from viewing greater distances. Now, there are also 66 massive telescopes, each of which look like a 100-ton radio antenna. They are positioned in one huge circle 9.9 miles wide, all of them are attached to one single giant telescope, and they claim they are viewing through a 10-mile opening, and in their words, I quote, seeing heaven, and now they know that elements emitted by dying stars created our sun, all our plants, and eventually humans. I always wondered why I sweat so much. Obviously, God is given no credit at all. Think of Psalm, verse 2. Psalm chapter 2, verse 3. 
in the message translation. The God deniers and the Messiah defiers say, let's get rid of God, cast loose from Messiah. Heaven throne God is amused at their presumption. Then he breaks out laughing. <laughs> well, God is aware of all of the discoveries, and he certainly knows about all of the ventures in space. But we know God is still creating every day, and his greatest creations are making totally new people out of those who want to shed their old destructive life and to be finished with old things and then blessed with the fresh and new life. I see God smiling at all of these explorations of space and the discovery of new galaxies that are now being seen. He watches and he watches and he listens and then he smiles and says, hmm, as he created another 100,000 galaxies for them to find and study. I guarantee you, God is going to win this game. To him be the glory forever and ever. From amen all the way to amen. Praise his name. He's our coach. Are you playing for him? God bless you all.